Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. Got a great show for you today. First up, we talk about the sexual misconduct scandal that is rocking the Canadian military. You've had more than 600 women have come forward over the last few years with reports of sexual misconduct, harassment, sexual assault. This has reached into the highest ranks of the Canadian military. We've got not one but two former chiefs of the defense staff, the highest military commanders in the country, both under investigation. We've had several other high-ranking generals and military brass swept up in this scandal. What has the Justin Trudeau government done about it? Well, they've ordered yet another review, another one. Kick the can down the road. It's not good enough. We need action on this file. Yesterday, Canada's military ombudsman, Greg Lick, sounded the alarm on this. The ombudsman standing by to speak to me in a moment here. First, have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Mercedes Stevenson. It is impossible to miss the frustration in Gregory Lick's voice. The scandal has put on display a culture that insulates its bad actors and demands silence of its victims. It's not often a public watchdog takes such clear and public aim at a sitting government, leveling explosive allegations of political interference. When leaders turn a blind eye to our recommendations and concerns in order to advance political interests and their own self-preservation or career advancement, it is the members of the defense community that suffer these consequences. All right, that report from Global News reporter Mercedes Stevenson. The National Defense and Canadian Armed Forces Ombudsman Gregory Lick joins me now on the phone. Uh, Mr. Lick, thanks a lot for coming on today. Yes, good morning, Mike. Okay, listening to your your report yesterday in your news conference, you sounded legitimately angry about the situation that we have in front of us here in Canada. Is that an accurate way to describe how you're feeling about this? I think absolutely. I'm not only angry, but frustrated. Uh, The lack of action on the issues that everybody has known about for years, if not decades, is it's making it's making people suffer. It's cre- it's continuing the suffering of victims. I, I said it very clearly. Even the prime minister reiterated my words: "Enough is enough. No more studies. Stop doing reviews upon reviews upon reviews, and just take action. That's what we need." Yeah, we just had a, a study about what five six years ago, and the government failed to implement the recommendations in that study, and yet here we have another, yet another review has been ordered by the government. How do you interpret that? Like, you know, is that just an effort to sort, like I said, kick this thing down the road? We've got an election probably coming up in the fall. I think you want a government that just wants this off the front pages. Yeah, I think my my pessimistic side would say exactly the same thing. Uh, But at the same time, I mean, Madame Deschamps was pretty clear on what was required to uh, make change. Uh, And even the leadership of the department, from the deputy minister and the acting chief of defense staff, said it was just a checklist exercise and nothing really was done to make real change. They have a lot to do. What I provided yesterday 
was part of the solution to allow me to 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 help get bring more fairness and more accountability of the department and the politician, or rather the minister in this case, uh, to things that need to change. Okay, speaking to Gregory Lick, Canada's ombudsman for the armed forces, your predecessor in your office, Gary Walborn, was a guest on this show uh, some couple of weeks back. And he told the story of how he tried to give evidence of sexual misconduct against General Jonathan Vance, the former chief of the defense staff, in a meeting with the defense minister, Harjit Sajjan, back in 2018. I want to play a clip here for you of Gary Walborn, your predecessor here, describing how he tried to give that evidence to the defense minister, and then what happened. Have a listen. After the conversation, as I was telling him, I had that, uh, you know, uh, allegation against the chief of defense staff. I reached into my suit pocket to pull out the evidence I was holding, and uh, he pushed back from the table, put up his hands, and said no. He didn't want to see the evidence. He said no. Uh, Gregory Lick, what do you think of that? Well, I think it's a shame. Uh, I think not seeing the evidence and then understanding what needed to be done at that point is shirking your responsibility. That's a lack of accountability. I don't pretend to be a military law expert as to where it should have gone after that. But even if it did, and it did, uh, was forwarded to PCO, there was no follow-up afterwards. Again, it was ignored. Right. The PCO is the Privy Council office, which is basically the, the main branch of the, the Prime Minister's office and the Cabinet. It's a very important high-level office in, in, in the government. So this complaint went there. And then what happened? Like, nothing happened, though, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm going on what was reported, absolutely. But, yeah, nothing happened. And, that, and, then, and then there was no follow-up from the minister. What happened? Is anything done? Is there any follow-up from there that we, could, uh, that we need to take a next step? Nothing. Okay, let me play a clip here for you from the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, reacting yesterday to your report calling for uh, more authority in, in your office. And here's the Prime Minister. We have taken concrete actions over this past year to make sure that anyone who comes forward with stories of misconduct uh, or allegations of uh, uh, sexual assault are heard, are supported, uh, and that there are consequences uh, through a rigorous process. We also need to make sure we are changing the culture uh, that has uh, been pervasive for far too long within our armed forces of tolerance to misogyny, to unacceptable actions. Hey, Gregory, like, what do you think of that? I mean, it sounds like we've been hearing the same thing now for six years from this government on this file, but your thoughts? Well, that's true, I think, and that's my point, is that we hear lots of words, we have, and let me be clear, I think we have a, 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 the vast majority of people within the military and the department are good people. They want to do the right thing. They're just not well supported. So culture has to change absolutely, but words are not enough. In, this idea that we have to do study after study after study is really just kicking the can down the road. Really, what we hear on our complaint line, what we hear from constituents, they have lost confidence in the leadership, in the, in the Canadian Armed Forces and the Department to do the right thing. Even Justice Fish said the grievance yeah. system, which supports people who have complaints, has collapsed under its own weight. It's broken, and that's why I keep saying we need to take action now. Right. I, I certainly agree with you. Let me ask you about calls for civilian oversight 
of the military, especially investigations when we got allegations of misconduct. It just seems to me there is a crying need for this. It's been a long-standing recommendation of some sort of civilian oversight here. We need it for due process, independence, fairness for victims and complainants. And, you know, I thought we saw this graphically on display the other day when, when General Jonathan Vance, the former chief of the defense staff, who's under investigation right now, went golfing with uh, two other senior military brass, including the guy who's basically in charge of the military police in Canada who's investigating Vance. It's unbelievable. I just think that that shows you the, the contempt that some of these leaders hold for uh, their political, their so-called political leaders. What what do you think needs to be done about that? Like, do you think we need civilian oversight? Absolutely. And, and that's yeah. what I've put forward in my position paper. Not only what is required as must-haves, not just recommendations, but must-haves, but also how we can do it and what, what I call teeth are necessary to be able to make this work better, that civilian oversight. The need for permanence through legislation, absolutely. The need for it to be able to escalate it beyond the minister, beyond the department, even to the prime minister and ultimately to parliament if necessary. Certainly not for every complaint, but for ones that need it, we need that ability to escalate and get action. And then finally, the main one uh, is to be able to mandate responses from the department so yeah. that they have a responsibility and are accountable for those recommendations. They may not agree with every recommendation that we make. That's fair, but they have to respond. That is what due process and fairness is all about. Thank you for speaking out on these important issues. I know it, ta it takes guts to, to stand up and speak out like this, especially when you're a servant in government, and I, I really appreciate your time on the show here today. That's my pleasure, uh, and I hope we can see some change. All right, welcome back. Man, what a stretch of weather we've got coming up here. We have got a scorching hot weekend in the works here. Lots of people looking to hit the road for a road trip here now with the weather turning nice, but... The temperature outside, not the only thing going up. Metro gas prices also on the rise. Why are gas prices going up, up, up? And will the city of Vancouver whack drivers in the wallet even harder with parking permits, pollution fees, and mobility pricing? Let's discuss now with my guest, Dan McTagg. Dan is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Dan. Hey, great to be here, Mike. Wish Excellent. it was for another topic, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. We always talk to you with these, this pain at the pumps here every time we got you on. So what's going on out there? How much is the price of gas right now? Yeah, so 165.9 is what we're seeing at uh, most stations this morning here in the uh, the area of Vancouver, Greater Vancouver, served by TransLink. That's because there's a difference in tax. Um, and it's up uh, another two cents uh, tomorrow, as uh, your wow. colleague Janet Brown has quite rightly pointed out. Uh, One sixty-seven nine tomorrow. And uh, look, I don't know where this is going to end. Uh, the energy markets in general uh, are on a bit of a rally, so we could see yet another two cent increase come Friday. That brings us pretty much to the doorstep of a dollar seventy a liter for average prices here in uh, in Vancouver. Okay, what is driving this price rise? Well, the nine cent or ten cent that we've seen in the past week has everything to do with uh, disruption of uh, an important refinery just south of the border. The Phillips sixty six refinery has put a bit of a crimp in uh, supplies into the Pacific Northwest market. Now, that's a market defined as Oregon, 
Washington and uh, pretty much all the lower mainland and Vancouver Island. So we draw some of our gasoline from there. Uh, of course, we do produce a little bit of our own here in Vancouver, and a lot of it, the majority, comes from the Trans Mountain Pipeline from Edmonton. But uh, it, uh, we're pricing into a particular market that is now showing signs of, uh, of a supply crimp. And at the same time, we're seeing oil on a bit of a rally. Um, oil has uh, moved up about $2, $3 a barrel just in the past week and a half. Uh, and that's starting to uh, uh, to take a bit of a bite uh, in terms of higher prices. I note that the U.S. Department of Energy just put out its uh, weekly petroleum inventory report. The fifth, sixth week in a row that we've seen a decline in oil inventories. The average is now 6% below. Uh, and that really means that uh, oil producers, Canada, United States, are not, uh, are not fulfilling the gap. Uh, supply is becoming uh, a little more dear. And of course, uh, much of it to do with the fact that demand is on the rise while uh, production has, uh, has fallen off uh, uh, to levels that we haven't seen well before the, uh, the pandemic. So there's a bit of a problem here and it's likely to get worse. Okay, that's really bad news for people who are looking to get out. A lot of people got cabin fever here, Dan, after the pandemic. The travel restrictions are being loosened, which is great. The weather is, is awesome. People looking to go on a road trip. So, you know, when they get behind the wheel of their car, if they're driving a gas-powered car, they should expect to say, pay more here in the weeks ahead? Well, I think it's already uh, at a dollar seventy this weekend. Uh, I think a dollar seventy-five is... Wow. Uh, and I mentioned this uh, some months ago, that we'd be seeing a dollar seventy, dollar sixty-five to dollar seventy-five. We're here now. Um, anything's possible. Worst case scenario, Mike, is that we see another refinery disruption somewhere along the line between Edmonton and uh, Washington State, uh, or that we see oil move to, as some believe, uh, you know, $100 a barrel. That would add uh, you know, easily another 15 cents, perhaps more, to a liter of gasoline. So, you know, do, do we look at $1.80, $1.85? I'm hoping not. I'm hoping I'm absolutely wrong. But uh, the fundamentals don't lie. There is a problem yeah. on the supply side of oil. Okay, you mentioned that you took a look at the gas prices in Metro Vancouver right now, particularly in the in the TransLink region. And is that because there's a TransLink tax imposed on, when you pay at the pump? Correct. Yeah. Uh, look, yeah. Uh, rest of BC doesn't pay the TransLink. Um, Victoria has its own, but that makes a big difference. Uh, I'm in Toronto right now. It's a buck thirty-two for a liter, buck thirty-one for a liter wow. of gasoline. Gee. I don't pay 18.5 cents uh, for our Toronto Transit Commission uh, or whatever the case may be, or we have our own Metrolinks out here. Look, it has a lot to do with what we're seeing, and that's uh, uh, the higher the taxes go, uh, the higher and the more money you're going to spend. At $1.70 a litre, your, your direct tax is over 70 cents a litre. That is the highest tax jurisdiction anywhere in North America. And yeah. it in part explains these high prices. Yeah, the highest gas taxes on the continent. You've got that TransLink tax in Metro Vancouver. Of course, we got the carbon tax in British Columbia, which just went up again on April yep. 1st. We've got lots of other taxes get, get ladled on there as well every time you gas up at the pump. So the highest in North America. What about that other, um, you've also spoken out on the rules in British Columbia for the there's a clean fuel standard or a carbon intensity yeah. standard for fuels here. How does that work, and how does that affect the price of gas in BC? Yeah, so if anyone goes to the Ministry of Energy, Mines, and Low Carbon Innovation and look at their last uh, bulletin, uh, it's RLCF-017. I'm just putting that out there for folks who think I'm just pulling this stuff out of thin air. Um, the uh, last quarter, the average price for a carbon credit was $410.73. Uh, if I look at the uh, 
federal government's uh, guidelines in terms of numbers and how that uh, that breaks down. Uh, on uh, in December, the federal government put out its uh, regulatory impact analysis statement, that so-called RIAS. Uh, $410 works out to about $0.14 cents a litre. I think others have spoken to this. Uh, Chris Sims of the Taxpayers Federation has been very outspoken on this as well. It means there's embedded in this price that we don't see uh, and that the Oregon government was referring to as mystery sense. There's no mystery at all. And as I contended two years ago when the BCUC came out with its report, well, 22 months ago, there's no mystery to this. It is the regulation that says low-carbon fuel standards have to be applied, and there is a cost for that. Unfortunately, BC is competing, the only other jurisdiction, uh, with California for those rare carbon credits. And those carbon credits have gone up uh, over two years ago, over 200 bucks. Now they're about 400 bucks. So that's part of the main reason why prices are as high as they are, despite oil only being about 73 bucks. Oh, okay, okay, Dan, we're getting hosed here at the gas pump already, as you've described, and the price is set to go up even more. You've got a city government in Vancouver looking at whacking drivers even harder here. They're looking at parking permits. They're looking at pollution fees. Mobility pricing in Vancouver, where they'd set up these virtual toll booths or like a, a paywall around Vancouver, try to discourage people from driving. You dare to drive into Vancouver. They just whack you with even more yeah. like congestion fees. What, like at some point, like, you know, can you get any more blood out of a stone? Like when you take a look at gas prices across the whole country, I mean, you're responsible for the whole country. We got the highest here in Vancouver, and they're getting ready to whack people even more. Yeah, you have the highest gas prices anywhere in North America. Most expensive wow. place I can find uh, works out using Canadian dollars buying U.S. gallons. Uh, works out to about five fifty uh, a Canadian uh, dollar into gallons. Um, that's in Los Angeles and California. Uh, you're paying now today or tomorrow one sixty seven nine. Uh, you'll be paying about six forty five, almost six fifty by the weekend uh, a, a U.S. gallon uh, using yeah. Canadian dollars. So look, it's it's bad and it's going to get worse. And I think sooner or later, uh, you have one of two uh, outcomes: either voters are going to push back on this stuff, uh, or they're going to accept it. In which case, you're going to see some actually leaving uh, the jurisdiction for uh, in favor of more affordable areas, but. Uh, this kind of uh, hysteria and climate fanaticism has a massive cost. You're really the poster child or children for all of North America as to what not to do when you allow poli- politicians to damage uh, affordability and availability and reliability of, uh, of energies that we all need to get uh, well, and to maintain our standard living. Okay, so the price of gas in Metro Vancouver, uh, the equivalent per gallon, did you say it's six fifty a gallon equivalent? Yep, U.S. Okay, yep. six fifty U.S. a gallon equivalent. What is it right across the border in Washington State? Like a lot of people used to enjoy driving yeah. down across the border to gas up down there and save money. Yeah. Like how much is it there in Washington State? Yeah, about three twenty, three fifteen, three twenty a gallon. Oh, man. So you're oh, talking man. about a dollar fifteen, dollar twenty a liter. Uh, if you don't think seventy cents a liter versus eighteen cents in Washington State uh, makes a difference, uh, you're kidding yourselves. And that's for the direct cost. I didn't yeah. mention the hidden costs, the carbon, uh, the uh, second carbon tax, which is, of course, the low carb, you see low carbon fuel standard. In any event, yeah. all this means that uh, you're pricing yourself out of uh, everyone's ability to make ends meet. And uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't know what the answer is, uh, but uh, voters are really going to have to smarten up here. Uh, if they can't afford it, they know what to do. You take these folks by the, by the political collar, as they did in, in my case, and you, yeah. show them the, uh, you show them the door. Dan, thanks a lot for coming on today. Great to be here, Mike.
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about celebrities now wading into BC's old growth logging fight. Brian Adams, Neil Young, Greta Thunberg, Jane Fonda, Mark Ruffalo, Leonardo DiCaprio himself, yeah, getting involved in this, all calling now for a ban on old growth logging in BC. The heat and the pressure rising here on the bc government this is a campaign that's been put together by the environmental group stand.earth and they got some uh, a-listers here a-list celebrities getting on board calling for an end to all old growth logging in british columbia let's have a listen to part of their campaign here as you're watching this some of the last old growth trees in rainforests across british columbia are falling some of them are over a thousand years old. Premier Horgan, you promised to protect them. Less than 1% of forests in British Columbia still have big old growth trees. These forest giants live on indigenous land. And have been taken care of since time immemorial. They keep the air we breathe and the water we drink clean. They are essential in our fight against climate change. Minister Conroy, you promised too. Well, you're dragging your feet, elders, teachers, scientists, and many more are going to jail. And still, the trees are falling. If you're committed to work with Indigenous peoples, stop the logging of old growth immediately. Do the right thing. Defer logging in all at-risk. Old growth forest. Fulfill your promise that you made to your people. Not in three years. Not in three months. Today, right now. The, the world, world is watching. Okay, the world is watching here is the tagline there in that ad from Stand.Earth. You heard a lot of voices in there, including David Suzuki prominently in there. A lot of these other very high-profile celebrities that I mentioned, like Leonardo DiCaprio and Jane Fonda, have been endorsing this campaign and have signed a letter uh, to Premier John Horgan calling for this ban on old-growth logging. Okay. Let's talk about this now and whether celebrity endorsements like this uh, make a difference in the environmental debates that we have in our province. Does this put real pressure on the BC government? And should celebrities, international celebrities, be getting involved in these disputes or should they stay out of it? Let's talk about it now with my guest, Dallas Smith. Dallas is the president and chairman of the Nan Wakaulas Council. And I'm very pleased to welcome him. He's an indigenous leader, and I'm pleased to welcome him to the show. Dallas, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks a lot for having me, Mike. Hey, Dallas, can you tell the Nan, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it, the Nanwakulis Council, can you describe what that is? Yeah, Nanwakulis Council is a group of nations that came together during the Great Bear Rainforest um, debates and agreements and worked together on land and resource management planning issues. Right, and you're an indigenous guy. You're an indigenous leader on Vancouver Island, and uh, I know that these are these are difficult issues for First Nations, right? Like, would you would you say that would you say that the com communities are divided on old growth logging right now? Would that be safe to say? Yeah, it's definitely safe to say they're divided. There's a lot of discussions that need to continue to happen internally in the communities. That unfortunately, announcements from my friends at Stan just don't really take into consideration and, and help. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about this Stand.Earth campaign here, and we see a lot of these like international celebrities getting on board here, Dallas. So, so when you see a campaign like this, like with Neil Young, uh, Jane Fonda, Leonardo DiCaprio speaking out on old growth logging in BC, what do you think of that? 
Well, it's frustrating because it's really only one side of the coin. There, there's a lot of people working on sustainable processes going forward, and it's really discouraging from a First Nations point of view when now whole pro- high-profile Canadians seem to have more say than the Indigenous community yet again. Um, so that, that's one of my concerns with, with what Stan has done. Okay, well, are many, are many First Nations in B.C. right now involved in old growth logging well i mean that that's a that's a little bit of a subjective question but i mean the majority of the nations in bc have forest and range agreements with revenue sharing through bc timber sales and there there is a there is a bit of old growth logging happening in there so it's more about talking how the transition works as saying okay tomorrow we just do that because there's a lot of other things in play that need to be taken into consideration so i wish these prominent canadians would come and spend a little time in some of the communities and get to understand that perspective of why First Nations are continuing to develop resources because of the social needs. Yeah, okay, so like if a guy like um, Leonardo DiCaprio were to come to British Columbia or, or Jane Fonda and, and they wanted to learn about this issue right in the ground, I mean, I don't know, would you be willing to show them around and talk to them? Well, definitely, and yeah. as a result of the Great Bear Rainforest discussions and us owning Night Inlet Lodge, which is a high-end um, ecotourism lodge, we were actually talking with Leonardo's foundation about maybe supporting some work we're doing. So oh. we're definitely open to sharing some information, but it it's hard when people just jump sides like this and aren't able to really have that full, balanced discussion that, that we need to continue to have. Yeah, right. I'm speaking to Dallas Smith. Dallas is an Indigenous leader in B.C. on Vancouver Island, and we're talking about old-growth logging and some of the celebrity campaigns we're seeing in B.C. right now. I mean, I don't know. I, I just see this. This must be a tough one for Indigenous leaders like yourself and First Nations because, you know, like you said, people are divided. I mean, everybody's divided on these issues, right? But when you see a campaign like this and you hear that campaign invoking indigenous first nations interests there right like you heard you know one of the one of the voices we heard in that ad that we played there was chief Stuart phillip from the union of bc indian chief saying like look you know stand with first nations in, in demanding an end to to this logging but that doesn't speak for all first nations though correct no, and I mean, we've seen this in, in a vast array of issues from aquaculture to um, oil and gas development, forestry, where, I mean, it's unfortunate that the angle, the angle slant is to drive this disconnect between hereditary and elected leadership, where most communities, like the ones in Ferry Creek, have that discussion and understand where their hereditary fit. So it's discouraging when people keep talking about Indigenous rights and Indigenous values until it's time for them to implement those and use them in the best interest of their community. And um, this is this is where we end up, and it's great for fundraising. I mean, you get Leo, you get Neil Young, you get all those guys there. Um, everybody's going to donate five bucks to just help further, you know, a base, not a baseless discussion, it's a huge concern, but it's just there's there's not a common denominator that's the problem with the activist community is they're not really accountable to anybody. Well, do you you know that's an interesting point. Um, do you think that money is a part of the equation here? Like a lot of there's a lot of fundraising that goes on with the with these groups. And yeah, when you get when you get these validators like big stars like Leonardo DiCaprio or Jane Fonda or whatever, yeah, I'm sure that probably does uh, drive some fundraising donations. 
Well, definitely, and we've seen that yeah. throughout the Great Bear. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's a problem around old growth management, but there's a lot of people working really hard on it. Um, so, you know, the issue has had to come to a boil because the companies do need to be kept in check. But now it's just up the ante on this because of the international pressure that's come on this. And the more international pressure that came on the Great Bear, the longer it took because it was just a slower process because it was more about arguing as opposed to working on the solution. So, um, do you, do you, you think, know, uh, everybody's fundraising and getting ready to go. Yeah. And do you think the... Um I don't know, like celebrities or outside environmental groups should, I don't know, stay out of it? Because, I mean, you take a look at what's going on in the Ferry Creek dispute on Vancouver Island, where you had the Pachidot First Nation had been quite clear in saying, look, we... We would like the we we would like uh, outsiders to leave the territory and let us figure this out for ourselves, and that doesn't happen. You know, you continue to see blockades, we continue to see arrests, and there's a lot of fundraising going on there too. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, as an indigenous leader, would you what would you say to like these celebrities who who are wading into this? Would you would you tell them like stay out of it and let us figure it out ourselves, or what? Well, I mean, maybe get some perspective. Maybe come and yeah. talk to some of these elected councils who are, you know, put forward by their communities and work with their hereditary leadership in their community uh, on why some of these decisions are made and what they want to see around protecting some of these things. Um, having that kind of investment um, that they could fundraise to go towards solutions as opposed to fighting would go a long way. But, um, you know, we've seen this play out in BC before and, you know, we're going to watch it again that environmentalists are going to raise a lot of money and they're going to drag this out. And, you know, it's, I don't know, it's almost like the old godfather. We need a good dust up every once in a while. I'm not <laughs> sure if that's the case, but. <laughs> um, how important is responsible resource development, do you think, for like the future of, of First Nations? I mean, you know, I've talked to a lot of First Nations leaders like yourself who have talked about the, the, the importance of Indigenous communities controlling the resources in their traditional territories, managing them responsibly, and using the resources that are badly needed for community services, putting people to work, taking care of elders, paying for kids, edu- you know, post-secondary education. I mean, there's so many important things that come out of these the responsible development of these resources. Like, how important do you think that is right now for First Nations in BC, would you say? Oh, definitely. First Nations need to continue to just be a bigger driver in how they determine their self or how they make their self determination happen. Um, you'll see most of the communities that do get involved in some resource management or some resource development agreements tend to put that back into stewardship and guardian programs to make sure that we got our people out there overseeing what's being done and trying to make sure it's as sustainable as possible. And that's where, you know, Premier Horgan's intentions paper comes in where it gives us the ability to talk about some of those things now and some of those changes that we know need to happen throughout the last few years of, you know, old growth and forestry debates have led us to a point where we know there's some fundamental change around tenuring, around permitting, and all those sorts of things. And so I think the more nations that are ready to have that discussion, I think we can see some change on the ground pretty quick. Dallas, thanks a lot for being on the show today and, and bringing your perspective on it. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks a lot, Mike. Anytime. Okay, thank you. That's Dallas Smith. He is an Indigenous leader in our province on Vancouver Island. He's the pr- president and chairman of the Nanakolas Council which is a a business development group that helps First Nations, especially in resource development.
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the parole hearing for Paul Bernardo now, one of the most notorious serial killers and rapists in Canada, currently serving a life sentence in a maximum security prison in Ontario for the torture killings of two teenage girls there. These are some of the most heinous and evil crimes in recent Canadian history. This is one of the most reviled criminals in our country. He was up for parole again yesterday. Uh, In a moment, I'll speak to Tim Danson, the lawyer for the families of Bernardo victims, Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey. But first, have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Catherine McDonald. After less than an hour of deliberations, serial rapist and convicted schoolgirl killer Paul Bernardo was denied full and day parole. The Parole Board of Canada citing the dangerous offender's lack of understanding and insight into his crimes, saying his risk cannot be managed in the community. The families are... Um, very pleased at the decision. Bernardo's parole officer told the hearing the 56-year-old who has been in prison since 1995 when he was declared a dangerous offender for abducting, torturing and murdering 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey and 15-year-old Kristen French has not completed any courses since his last parole attempt. Since that time, the officer said Bernardo has made no progress, remains a high-risk offender, and did not provide a release plan to his case management team. Kristen French's mother spoke about how difficult it is to muster up the strength to face her daughter's killer, a sexually sadistic psychopath. We have to accept what happened to our precious daughter, but what we cannot and will not accept is the possibility of this happening to another innocent girl by the same perpetrator. Leslie Mahaffey's mother wrote about the pain of going through another parole hearing. Since the last parole hearing in October 2018, we have tried to forget about this dangerous offender's existence and enjoy and remember everything about Leslie's short and precious life. Yet once again, Bernardo's desires are inflicted on us as he inserts himself into our lives again, forcing his horrors and terrifying memories upon us. When Bernardo was given a chance to speak, he talked about the possibility of moving to a halfway house in Kelowna, where he would be on anti-sex drive medication to control his sexual deviancy. He said he would prefer to stay here in Ontario close to his parents, but understands it would be better to move to B.C., about 3,000 kilometres away from where the crimes occurred. Okay, that report from Global News reporter Catherine McDonald. Let's talk now to my guest Tim Danson, who is the longtime lawyer for the families of Bernardo victims Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Tim, thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. First of all, thank you for your long service to to these aggrieved families. I, I, these crimes have shocked our country, and I think you've just done a tremendous job in, in representing the interests of these families and, the, and these victims. So I, I thank you for that. Let's let's talk about this parole hearing. I just find it. I think a lot of people, Tim, will find it astonishing um, that this guy is up for a parole hearing again. Because didn't we just go through this a few years ago? We did, and this is something which the families are calling upon Canadians to uh, contact their members of Parliament. We, we really do need to change the law, and, and we do need to distinguish, and this is very important, uh, we need to distinguish those offenders, the most dangerous offenders, who have been convicted of, of first-degree murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. Fortunately, that's a small uh, number of the, of, the, of the prison population in Canada, so to be clear, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, the majority of, of offenders who have fixed sentences and will eventually get out. But when we're dealing with the Paul Bernardos of the world, um, it, is, it is cruel, in my, in my opinion, and I represent so many um, victims of violent crime. Uh, the anguish, the, dis- 
spare um, uh, the gut-wrenching experience of preparing victim impact statements and having to come back every, you know, on average two years is, yeah. is, is, is just too much for them. And we need to change the law so that they don't get the right to have parole hearings so often. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, this process, I mean, it basically re-victimizes these families. It re-traumatizes them all over again, does it not? Well, it does. And I think Canadians would be actually shocked to know that, that the law is, is that someone like Paul Bernardo, we finished his parole hearing yesterday. Fortunately, and the families are relieved that parole was denied. But he can apply again for parole in one year. And under the law, the parole board has to have a hearing within six months. Uh, the only reason why we were delayed to two years and eight months f- from his last hearing is because when he filed and he asked for some postponements. But otherwise, a guy like Paul Bernardo could, could, could re-victimize my clients every year and a half if he wished to. And what we saw yesterday, uh, and particularly his long, lengthy rant um, that he had uh, prepared submission for the, for the parole board, uh, was uh, just pure entertainment for him. I mean, it was, uh, uh, he was looking forward to this. He, 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 he enjoys this. And so, uh, you know, this is one of the hallmarks of, 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 of a psychopath. They're, 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 they're uh, you know, they're deceitful, they're manipulative. They're evil and they're dangerous. And the fact that, uh, as in your introduction, you know, the fact that he had done absolutely nothing since his last parole hearing in terms of involved in pro- programs and the likes shows that this was an utter waste of time. And, and to what end? Just to, yeah. to re-victimize my clients? It, it's not right. Um, my view is at a minimum, you know, that he should have, a, they should, once they've had their first parole hearing after 25 years, uh, absent some very compelling evidence or, or, or breakthrough in medical science for psychopaths, which doesn't exist right now, they shouldn't be allowed to do this, you know, five, seven years, something in, in that range, because uh, we have to be concerned about constitutional issues. But five, seven years would be far more appropriate than, than two years. Right. Speaking to Tim Danson, the longtime lawyer for the families of Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey, two of the victims of, of Paul Bernardo, who was denied bail once, uh, denied parole once again yesterday. I mean, Tim, I think it's just shocking that we go through this so frequently. I mean, is there any, there's no chance this guy will be paroled, right? I mean, what's the point of it? Well, uh, you know, it's an interesting question. If, if I was on your show as a kind of an independent uh, legal expert, I would tell you that the chances of Paul Bernardo ever being paroled is somewhere between zero and nil. Um, yeah. As the people in British Columbia particularly know, um, you know, he's in the same category as a Clifford Olson or a Picton. You know, right. they won't get out. They don't get out. But, but as counsel for the families, you know, we don't take anything for granted. Uh, we're not complacent. Um, uh, we we prepare for these hearings uh, um, uh, as best we can, and unfortunately, you know, unless the law changes, the families are going to have to keep doing this over and over again uh, uh, too often, and, and I don't think that's uh, fair. I, I think it's interesting when he made his request to to be paroled and to do his uh, be released into the community in British Columbia, thousands of miles away from my client, thinking that okay, that's a good idea. Uh, he obviously doesn't appreciate the implications of being a sadistic um, uh, sexual sadist and psychopath, which is whether he's in Ontario or whether he's in British Columbia or anywhere else in Canada, he represents a very, very serious threat to uh, 
the public safety. And I would have thought that the people in Kelowna and in British Columbia would have been uh, outraged and alarmed that he thought it was a good idea to be released into the community in British Columbia. Well, I, I can assure you that that is the case, and I wonder if that's part of the, the thrill that he gets of, of mentioning another community and maybe getting people upset in that community, too, if, if, he, gets, if, if he gets some sort of satisfaction out of that. Um, yeah, I think he does. And, and, you know, as I say, this is all about uh, entertainment for him. Uh, for those of us who participated in the hearing yesterday and actually heard him speak, um, you know, um, and this is why I believe that, uh, uh, the, the audio recording of the, of the parole hearing plus other, other evidence should be made public. The public should hear this for themselves. He, he talks about the unspeakable crimes that he committed against my client, uh, like uh, normal people would talk about the weather. And he's not even conscious of that. Um, you know, he, 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 he's so detached from reality. His cognitive distortions are frightening. Um, you know, and he, he talked about getting credit for the fact that he hadn't violently sexually vi- um, committed an offense in the last 28 years. He, he wants credit for, for not committing further criminal acts while he's in prison. I mean, this just kind of illustrates the way well, in which he is so far removed from reality. Well, is, he's also in isolation in prison, too, right, isn't he? Well, so. you know, that's an, another interesting issue. Of course, as part of his long rant yesterday, he talked about uh, being in, he called it solitary confinement. It's actually protective custody for right. a sex offender. But he, he, he said that his rights under Section 12 of the Charter uh, to be uh, protected against cruel and unusual punishment have been, have been violated. And my response to that, and I'm not trying to be facetious, um, you know, if, if he thinks it's cruel and unusual punishment for him to be in protective custody, I can assure you that the families would support any application he makes to be uh, moved into the general prison population and see how he integrates with them before he tries to integrate with uh, members of the public. Um, it's, just, it's just outrageous that a person who could engage in the sadistic brutality and evilness against two defenseless teenage girls can talk about cruel and unusual punishment, uh, which ironically uh, is there for his own protection. Tim Danson, thank you for your time today. Thank you for the service to these families who are victimized by this person. I appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much.